And that's good singing. And good singing rejoices the heart. And it's a good preparation for the preaching of the word. So we're blessed in our own hearts, and we trust that you're blessed as well. Turning now for our Bible reading to John's Gospel, chapter 3. And we're reading verses uh, 11 to 21. John's Gospel, chapter 3, starting at verse 11 and reading down to verse 21. Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe If I tell you of heavenly things, and no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth On him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil." For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Amen. And God will bless this reading to our own hearts for Jesus' sake. We want you to turn again, please, to the third chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 3. And as you open up the page, we will Take a moment to seek the Lord and to pray for his help afresh upon the preaching of his truth. O God, our loving Father, we thank thee once again for the liberties that the gospel has brought to us. 
liberty from bondage, a soul set free. We thank thee, O God, our Father, that we no longer serve the devil, but we serve the Lord Christ. And Lord, what a master he is, and what rewards he holds in his hand for those who are faithful to him. And Father, tonight we rejoice in our great salvation and thank thee for thy love which sought us, for the blood which bought us, and for the grace which brought us to the Savior. And our Father, as we preach now, we're conscious of our weakness and even, Lord, our unworthiness because we are unworthy servants. And we pray, Father, for the infilling and the power of the Holy Spirit that they would speak to all our hearts and minister to all our needs. We ask it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Some of you may remember that a while back, perhaps it's several years now, that two prominent churchmen were giving their views on the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on a, a, a radio interview. It must surely have moved every true child of God to contempt to hear a so-called Protestant Anglican minister deny that the Son of God actually rose from the dead. To make matters worse, the Roman Catholic priest who was interviewed beside him on that very same program did his best to say something to uphold the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. And while we oppose Rome's beliefs and Rome's falsehoods, nevertheless, we were saddened as it took someone of a false faith to try to say something in public concerning the resurrection of Christ in a positive way. That was deeply grieving and deeply hurtful to a Christian conscience. In the Gospel of Mark, the last chapter, we are certainly informed that the bodily resurrection of Christ is a fact. It took place. And by the way, these important verses in Mark 16, verses 9 to 20, are cut out, believe it or not, they're cut out of many modern ecumenical translations of the Word of God. They're not in the Bible. And we are not surprised then that an ecumenical apostate minister has no faith in the doctrine of the resurrection. 
It doesn't surprise us. In verse 9 of that chapter, the Holy Spirit tells us two things. First, that Christ did rise from the dead. Now it says, when Jesus was risen, early the first day of the week. And then secondly, that Christ also appeared to certain people. It goes on to say, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. The word first in that verse obviously means that he appeared to others as well. And so he did. Indeed, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6, after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After he rose from the dead, the Lord Jesus gives some instructions to his followers, instructions that they heeded and put into practice and went forth to preach the gospel, as Jesus said to every creature. They apply to you and me in this 21st century just as much as they applied to the apostles in that century in which they lived. Mark 16 and verse 15 says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now that is the business of the church in the world today. That's the business of believers in the world today. <coughs> to go into all the world as far as possible. Either going personally or assisting others to go and encouraging them and supporting them, preaching the gospel. Now, that's our business, even today. And with these words in mind, and with the story I have told you in mind, we turn to our text in John chapter 3, verses 16, 17, and 18. And in these verses, we have some interesting things. Our message tonight is entitled with two words. Two words. And those two words are great things. First of all, we have a great fact. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you will notice here that emphasis is put on God himself. The person of God is emphasized for God God's person is emphasized here. This is an age of gross unbelief. 
<coughs> of gross unbelief in the existence of God. Modern man, with all his achievements, thinks that he is his own master. He does not need God in his thinking. He does not need God in his life. The world is full of those who imagine it modern and even cool, as the expression is today, to deny that God exists. Amongst our universities, our schools and our colleges, in the workplace and the marketplace, it's cool not to believe in God. And many there are out there tonight who are lost in sin, in degradation, far from God, without hope and without Christ. And oh, how we need to bring the gospel to such and to show them from the word of God that God is, God's alive, And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now such views of unbelief that deny the existence of God does not take God by surprise. It doesn't. We read in Psalm 14, and then again the very same thing in Psalm 53 of such people. God calls them fools. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. You will remember about 10 or 12 years ago, a group of atheists Uh, organized an anti-God campaign. They designed a poster (coughs) to be carried on the London buses. Some of you may recall that. The message on that poster was, there is probably no God, so don't worry. Just enjoy yourself. What an advertisement But why did they say, probably no God? Well, like many people who deny the existence of God, but when they are challenged, maybe they're just not so sure. Maybe from things around, (laughs) from creation, from the manifold beauties of God's creation— Maybe in the back of their mind and their thought, (coughs) they think, maybe perhaps there is a God. So that's maybe why they said, probably there is no God. You see, the Bible tells us that there is a God. And that he has designed a law by which people have to live if they want to go to heaven. If we break that law, then we're doomed for hell for all eternity. That's the Bible's teaching. Wouldn't it be wise to investigate the claims of the Bible in order to find the truth (coughs) rather than ignore it and live all our lives in uncertainty only to discover that at the end 
that we have deceived ourselves. Wouldn't the atheists and all the other unbelievers do well to consider the Scriptures, to investigate the Bible, and discover the truth of God's precious Word? We are all guilty, are we not, of disobedience to God, (coughs) guilty of breaking the Lord's commandments, guilty of not loving him and serving him. And that means that we have broken God's law, broken it. And in addition to that, God expects us to love and honor him and to refrain from using his name carelessly and in vain. We are to keep the Sabbath day holy for worship. We are not to be covetous or envious. We're not to commit murder or adultery. We are not to dishonor our parents. These are the commandments of God. Can you honestly say tonight, that you have kept all these commandments perfectly. Even to break one of them is to break all of them. For no mere man (coughs) since the fall is able perfectly in this life to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, in word, and in deed. Jesus Christ is the only righteous person that ever lived on this earth. Nobody else. He alone kept all God's laws perfectly. He alone lived a completely sinless life and then paid the penalty for our sins by his death upon the cross. The Bible says that he died the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He became our substitute, and it is through him alone that God will accept us, save our souls, and forgive all our sins, so that we can receive eternal life and live with God forevermore. Friend, that's what Christ has done for us. Such is the grace of God in Christ. He loved us. He gave himself for us. He took our place. He died in our room instead. He suffered for us. He was punished for us. And it's by his stripes that we are healed. And the same Lord Jesus invites you to come to him. He invites you tonight to come. And if you put your trust in him, acknowledging and confessing your sins, he will forgive you and he will save you. And so, yes, there is a God. There's a God in heaven. There's a God who loves you. There's a God who sent his son to save you. There's a God who's willing to receive you. He's willing to embrace you. He's willing to forgive all your sin, pardon them, so that they will never 
be remembered against you anymore. Is that God not worth trusting? Yes, he is. Will you trust him tonight? Will you come to him? He invites you to come. He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of love. And he's ready now to receive you. Come to the Savior. Make no delay. Here in his word, he has shown us the way. Here by your side, he's standing today tenderly saying, come. Oh, sinner, will you not come to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him as your Savior tonight? Not only have we here a great person, and the person of God emphasized, but we have the love of God emphasized. The love. God so loved. Underline that we word love, or so. God so loved. How can we ever start to describe the love of God? How can we do it? What an impossible task. And yet, we must try to say something about it. The Lord uses only a two-letter word to describe his love for mankind, for sinners lost and ruined by the fall. A two-letter word, God so loved the world. The thought here surely is that the love of God is unique. There's nothing like it. The word so is impossible properly to define. To the person hearing these words, we gladly say, the love of God to you is unmatched. It is unfailing. It is unceasing. And albeit undeserving. God so loved. Oh, what love, what love. If you can be certain of nothing else, then be assured of this one thing. God loves you as an individual <clears throat> because he has written it into his word. That's why. That's how I know. He has given it in his will and testimony to his people in his own precious word. God so loved. Can't deny it. We can't ignore it. We just can't throw it aside. Let us acknowledge it. The Bible says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Thank God we can be certain that God loves us. <coughs> Frank Lehman wrote these lovely words. <coughs> the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the brightest star and reaches to the deepest hell. These sentiments, do they not spring up before anyone who would seek to dwell upon this wonderful subject of the love of God. 
we can never make too much of God's love. But oh, how easily we may understand it. Do you understand it tonight? God so loved the world. The inspired statement of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 sets before us some glorious truths about God's love for the world. It says this, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a truth. What a message. That's enough if we should hear no more. Enough to convince us that God is, that God is love, that God sent his Son, that God gave the gift of Christ to sinners <coughs> to save them from their sin and to cleanse them and make them ready for heaven. The person of God is emphasized in this great verse of Scripture. And the love of God is emphasized in this great verse of Scripture. And the gift of God is also emphasized in this great verse of Scripture. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave he gave. That's the gift. He gave. When the Lord Jesus commissioned his disciples to preach the gospel in all the world, he sent them out to declare facts. To declare facts. Things that were true. He sent them out to declare the truth of God. God's word is true and it cannot be altered. <clears throat> He sent them out to preach the fact of God's person. God is. He sent them out to preach the fact of God's love. God so loved. And the fact of God's gift. What did God give to the world? He gave many things. He gave us the world in the first place. But God gave us a Savior. He gave us his Son. His only begotten Son, what a price to pay for the redemption of his people. What a price. The price of the death of his son. Salvation is free. It's free to the trusting soul. But it has cost God the highest price. He gave everything when he gave his son. Indeed, he bankrupted heaven in order to save that guilty soul of yours. What love, what boundless love, the love of God to me. Now, it raises a very important truth, doesn't it? Why did God send his Son to be the Savior of men? Well, because men and women are lost in sin. That fact has been told many times to all of you. From the moment you were born until the present time, you're a lost sinner, unclean in the sight of God. Your sins have brought a division between you and your Creator so that you can have nothing to do with God in your sin. 
You can have nothing to do with heaven in your sin. You're a sinner. And if you die as you are without Christ, then you will perish in outer darkness for all eternity. Dear friend, we are dealing with the most solemn of facts here. The most solemn of truths, God's person is fact. God's love is fact. God's gift is fact. God's son is fact. Also, it is a fact that you are a lost sinner and you need to be saved. And you can be saved tonight, hallelujah. You can come to Christ and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Thank God for God's word and God's truth. Secondly, then we come to verse 17. And here in this verse we have a great purpose. A great purpose. This verse is clear in two parts. In the first place, we get the negative teaching of the verse. Look what it says, for God sent not his son. This is the negative part. He sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. Now, should he have chosen to condemn and to destroy this evil race of sinful mankind, God would have done nothing wrong. Nothing at all. But praise God tonight, he is the God of grace. Praise God, he's the God of love. He did not choose to give men what they deserved. Otherwise, men would be in hell, you and me included. No, God is not calling for your condemnation tonight. He's calling for your salvation. He's calling for your cleansing. Many in the world today have got impressions of the Lord Jesus Christ which are very far from correct. To some, he is only a common swear word. In my early teens, I used to work with a group of men, and all day long they swore and took the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in vain. And as a young Christian in my early teens, I had to claim the cleansing of the precious blood all day long in their company. But you know, God is able to keep us in all circumstances. Some people think that for a young Christian, it's not possible to live the Christian life in this present wicked world. I don't believe that. I believe God is able to keep his people under all circumstances. And he's able to keep them unspotted from the world. That is how great God's salvation is. Yes, you can't keep yourself, neither can I. But by dependence upon divine grace, God keeps me. God watches over me. God protects me. God will preserve me, and God will draw me close to himself. Do you not feel that in your Christian life? As a brother and sister in Christ, do you not experience that? 
Does that not become a reality in this old wicked world? Thank God we have victory over the devil. We have victory over the world. <clears throat> we have victory over the flesh within us. We have victory because Christ giveth us the victory. How wonderful is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, what a great purpose the Savior came for. Because in the second place, we have the positive here. It tells us the Son of God came to save. Listen. But that the world through him might be saved. He didn't come to condemn, but to save. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Isn't that good news? Oh, I never forget <clears throat> hearing the gospel for the first time in those meetings along the border district when God sent his servants, the faith mission pilgrims, to preach the gospel. And I heard that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I knew then I was a sinner. And I heard that Christ came to save me. And I heard he came to call me. And he called me. And by his grace I came. As a 14-year-old boy, I came to Christ. Tell me, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? How blessed is such a word as this. Here the lamp of hope burns brightly for you if you're not saved. You're a sinner, but Christ saves sinners just like yourself. It is not the turning over of a proverbial new leaf that saves. It is not a code of ethics that saves. It is not church attendance or membership that saves. It is Jesus Christ that saves. And if you, dear friend, if you uh, are ever going to be saved at all, you can only be saved by Christ alone. We offer you not a church. We offer you not a creed. But we offer you a living person as your only hope of eternal life. And then, thirdly, here there's a great responsibility. <clears throat> Verse 18. Verse 18. In this verse, the way of salvation is made clear and is made simple. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Isn't it good that the way of salvation is simple? It's not a confused way. Some people I have spoken with think that they will not be saved until they know more about the Bible. I don't know enough about the Bible to be saved. What nonsense. Untrue. You're deceiving yourself. If that is the case, then you will never be saved at all. It is by simple faith in God's written word that we're saved. 
The Lord graciously saved me, as I've said, at the age of 14. How do I know this? Because the Bible tells me. The Bible says so, for whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever. That brings you in under that umbrella. Whosoever shall call shall be saved. To believe in Christ to the saving of your soul is to receive him by faith into your heart. This third chapter of John's Gospel mentions the lifting up of the serpent of brass in the wilderness in verse 14. And this was for the relief of Israel. They were bitten by serpents, and the poison of those serpents' bites killed those people, and they died, and they perished in the wilderness. But Moses graciously interceded for the people, and God graciously answered Moses' prayers and instructed Moses to make a serpent of brass and to set it up high upon a pole and instructed the people bitten to look to the serpent of brass and they would be healed and not die. Only by a look at that serpent of brass they lived. Thank God there's life for a look at the crucified one. There's life at this moment for you. Then look, sinner, look unto him who was nailed to the tree. Will you look to Christ? As the Israelites were in sore distress and dying of those poisonous bites, so man is in sore distress because of his sin and dying on account of his sin. For all have sinned, and sin bringeth forth death when it is finished. As the serpent of brass was lifted up on the pole in the sight of the whole camp of Israel, so Christ was to be lifted up on the cross publicly and in the sight of the whole nation of Israel at Passover time. And thank God his word, the Bible, points us to the cross. And by faith we can see the cross. By faith we look to Christ. And the whole world is enlightened as they look by faith to the finished work of the Savior upon the tree. <clears throat> This story in Numbers, chapter 21, about the uplifted serpent of brass would be well known to Nicodemus, about whom the most of this chapter 3 of John is about. Nicodemus. God said you must be born again to him. He couldn't understand it. And then the illustration of the serpent of brass is given to him. And this story in Numbers 21, it's a story of sin. For the people rebelled against God and had to be punished. 
And God sent the fiery serpents to bite them so that they died. As a result of their sin, their rebellion, <coughs> their opposition to God, their turning of their back on him, they sinned and they reaped the penalty of their sin. It's also a story of grace. For Moses interceded, as I've said, for the people, and he made the serpent of brass uh, by instruction from God. And the people who looked to that serpent were healed. And it's a story of faith. For when the people looked by faith, they were saved. They didn't die. They lived. It was the 6th of January, 1850. A snowstorm almost crippled the city of Colchester in the county of Essex in England. And a teenage boy was unable to get to the church he normally attended. And so he made his way to a nearby primitive Methodist church where an ill-prepared layman was standing in for the absent preacher who could not make it because of the snowstorm. And that layman took as his text Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22. And it's simply this. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. For many months, <coughs> this young teenager had been miserable and under deep conviction of sin. But though he had been reared in the church... Both his father and his grandfather were preachers. He did not have the assurance of salvation in his soul. And when the unprepared substitute preacher got up to speak, he didn't have much to say. In fact, very little indeed. And so he kept repeating the text, Look unto me and be ye saved. And then he said, a man need not go to college to look. You don't have to go to college to know how to look. And he shouted, anyone can look. A child can look. And just about that time, he noticed the young stranger sitting in the side pew of the church. And he called out to him. And he said, young man, you look miserable. Young man, look to Christ. Young man, look and be saved. <coughs> and that young man did look. And he looked to Christ. And that is how the great preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, was converted to Christ and later became the greatest, one of the greatest preachers that England had ever known. Isn't it amazing how God works? He works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Oh, may he work wonders tonight in your life, even in that mis 
mysterious way which we can't understand. You see, the difference between perishing and living, the difference between condemnation and salvation is saving faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus could well have come to this world as a judge and have destroyed every rebellious sinner. But he didn't. He came in love. He came in grace. He came in mercy. He came to this world as our Savior, and he died for us on the cross of Calvary. He became the uplifted serpent, as it were. The serpent in Moses' day brought physical life to dying Israelites. But the Lord Jesus Christ gives eternal life, spiritual life, to anyone who trusts him. And as there was no poison in the brazen serpent upon the pool, no poison in that serpent, people asked to look and they would live. And I tell you, there's no sin in Jesus Christ. There was nothing that defileth ever in him. He was the holy, the sinless, and the spotless Son of God. And he gave his life for me on Calvary's cross. And thank God there's life for a look at him. And whosoever shall call on his name shall be saved. Only trust him. Only trust him. He will save you now. Only trust him. That was the hymn that was sung in the mission in Lurgan Early Hall, beside our home on the Monaghan side of the border, way back in 1955, when my mother came as a sinner to Christ during the singing of the words of that hymn. The evangelist was Mr. Edmund Sanford at the time. He's in the glory now. And as the word was preached and the invitation given and the singing of the closing hymn, my mom stepped forth to accept the Lord Jesus as her Savior. And I've ever loved that hymn because for that reason. And just now, friends, we're going to sing it. <laughs> 